Welcome back to the program. Nelson Mandela stands as one of our greatest living symbols of the struggle for freedom. His shadow still infuses the politics and culture of South Africa. Yet almost one half the country is under the age of 25 and doesn't know or remember their nation in anything but its post-apartheid period. How does and will this disconnect shape the future of the country? How can it deal with its substantial yet by comparison to its historical context, seemingly mundane issues of health, welfare, justice, and freedom. We're going to talk about this today with my guest, Douglas Foster. He's a former editor of Mother Jones magazine. He's a recipient of the Knight Fellowship at Stanford University and the Alicia Patterson Fellowship. He was formerly senior editor of the Center for Investigative Reporting and the director of the Graduate School of Journalism at the University of California, Berkeley. He's currently associate professor at the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern. It is my pleasure to welcome Douglas Foster here to talk about his new book, After Mandela, The Struggle for Freedom in Post-Apartheid South Africa. Douglas Foster, thanks so much for joining us. Good to be with you, Jeff. It's good to have you here. In in many ways, it is reflective in looking at South Africa of sort of revolutions in general, because the revolution is always exciting. What happens is that the crest of the revolution is always very filled with drama and excitement, and often the hard work that happens afterwards seems mundane by comparison. Talk a little bit about that in the context of South Africa today. Yeah, I think you've got it exactly right, especially in terms of the, the, the focus from the outside. Our tendency is to look at a movement like the one that uh, liberated South Africa politically and follow it through the tra- trajectory of uh, one individual, in this case Nelson Mandela. It's a story that's pretty hard to beat. Uh, coming from a rural area, becoming a lawyer, uh, becoming a guerrilla, going to prison for 27 years, and, uh, you know, the moment of redemption coming out and becoming the first black elected president of a new, uh, one of the world's uh, newest democracies. And then, uh, and then, of course, the story falls off our radar because um, we're used to covering um, little miracle stories or cataclysms. And um, the stories that exist uh, in between, which is the existence of most people on the globe, get a little less attention. So I was I was drawn in particular to uh, this story of a society attempting to stitch itself back together again after 50 years of a crime against humanity, the um, extreme and peculiar form of racial segregation that held sway there for so many years. And, uh, and to look at a place which, uh, which was hit by three important cross pressures right in the same years in the mid 90s, uh, the arrival of, of democracy arrives more or less on the same day as the hooking back up of the South African economy to a rapidly changing global capitalism. And, uh, HIV, uh, walked in the door on the same day. So some of what's happened in the intervening 18 years is explained by the crash uh, of those uh, three cross-currents. Of course, what happens when democracy comes, when a nation takes control of its own destiny or any organization, things like the garbage having to be picked up and the roads having to be paved are never as exciting by comparison. Sure, and there's a lot of uh, uh, there's a lot that happens in the lead-up. Uh, of course, in the late 80s and, and early 90s, uh, as the ANC comes in, um, there was a tremendous mass revolt. 
So there was, uh, you're right, a tremendous amount of uh, rebuilding of re- uh, uh, infrastructure, uh, getting systems in place, uh, undoing, uh, beginning to undo uh, the uh, layover of apartheid in in terms of education systems. Everything was segregated along uh, racial lines, and to break down those barriers and develop new systems that were, as Nelson Mandela promised, non-racial, non-sexist, um, um, non-homophobic, and more egalitarian in a world that was, uh, in some ways, hurtling in the other direction, uh, where uh, inequality was uh, increasing almost everywhere, was a um, very, very difficult task, and it's been a and it's been a very tenuous enterprise, an important experiment, um, but um, but but always threatened, partly because the ambitions were were so high, and made more difficult because even with political freedom, that so many of these things you're talking about are deeply ingrained in the culture of the country, and it's not just turning around the politics, but it's turning around the hearts and minds of the people. It's turning around the culture. Absolutely. When you uh, go through a period of, of virtually 15 years uh, of a policy of the liberation movement to make the country ungovernable, and then you're suddenly in the position of having to govern it, uh, the patterns, the habits, um, the attitudes even to uh, government authority uh, become things that uh, don't change overnight. It's absolutely right. The, the other aspect of it is is the struggle for social and economic justice in a nation where the division has been so wide for so long. Yeah, that's true, too. Um, you know, the the uh, Mandela slogan in the 1994 campaign was peace, jobs, justice. And uh, I think on the peace uh, uh, level, uh, a lot was achieved, um, partly through the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. But, of course, what you hear on the streets and in the townships is uh, we got the reconciliation but no justice. And, you know, that goes back to the, to the decision that was made not to continue fighting a guerrilla war but to reach a, a negotiated settlement in 1994. And that settlement, you know, crudely put, was a decision to, uh, to take political freedom, one person, one vote, uh, which had never taken place in South Africa before. The vast majority of the population was squeezed into 13% of the land and were not considered citizens in their own uh, country. Um, but the trade-off in, in that process of negotiation was that uh, proper, property rights were inscribed in the transition and in, in, the, um, in the Constitution. And as a result of that, the ability for uh, the government to re- re- redistribute uh, wealth and land uh, was was uh, sharply constrained. You know, a, a a tough argument to make that they had much of an alternative, but that is uh, where these consequences of not getting economic and social justice flow from many of those decisions to uh, maintain the essential structure of the economy. Uh, which means that 80% of the land and wealth are, is still in the hands of um, a minority of 9% uh, white, white folks. As your title implies, there's really two fundamental issues going on. One is, as we've been talking about, the kind of post-apartheid agenda, 
But there's also the post-Mandela situation and the shadow that he's cast and how difficult it has been for successive presidents to govern with Mandela's shadow still there. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting. There's a way in which uh, people across the spectrum um, still look to him as a kind of iconic presence um, who, uh, you know, articulated in a way that uh, his successors, President Thabo Mbeki and President Jacob Zuma, have not uh, been able to. Uh, a sense of uh, national unity and national purpose. Um, and I think there is, as a result of that, there is... Uh, Significant anxiety. This um, this promise um, uh, will go with him. I don't think that's going to happen. But but you know there were one of the young people who I focus on. Uh, I thread the narrative with the story of six young people, a mm-hmm. uh, street kid from Cape Town. Uh, when I when I told him that I've been shadowing uh, Mandela's successor, President Mbeki, he said. What do you mean, President Mbeki? Isn't Mandela still president? Mm-hmm. Um, and I and in the conversation, it became very clear that he was uh, he he was confused partly because he's illiterate and hadn't um, hadn't read about this new guy on the block, but also because he couldn't quite fathom the idea that um, Mandela was no longer leader and and full freedom hadn't arrived. And yet the corollary of that is this idea that there is this generation gap, that there's half the population under the age of 25 that doesn't know an apartheid South Africa. Right. So they live with its consequences, but don't, never saw, never directly experienced what it was like to uh, live under it. And I think that's, um, uh, you know, creates uh, trouble for the current leaders in that um, they expect respect uh, based on their long years of struggle in exile and prison or, or underground. I think in a, in a way there's a, a hopeful element in it too, and my group interviews around the country and the intensive time I spent with the six individuals leads me there, which is they know enough of the history to know what the big errors were of the past, but but they have a chance to escape from history's grasp in a way. They're also not um, burdened um, by the the kind of um, racial hatred that uh, apartheid inevitably inspired. In many ways, the younger generation, much of whom are are urbanized, have become part of, of a global generation, a generation of globalized citizens. Yeah, they're they're very different from um, from their elders. Whether they're still living in rural areas or transitional areas, townships, um, informal settlements, or or have migrated to the cities, they're part of a global culture. But what's really exciting about being around a city like Johannesburg is they're part of an Africanized global culture in the sense that uh, cities like. Uh, Johannesburg are now the collecting um, spot for all kinds of uh, immigrants from other places in, in in Africa who have, you know, entrepreneurial spirit. Or uh, there are three million Zimbabweans um, living in in South Africa because uh, because there is political freedom in South Africa and not in Zimbabwe. There's a kind of pan-African spirit and culture that's emerging there that's very very exciting to be around. So you're right, it's globalized, but it has a huge Africanized um, uh, component and kind of pan-African spirit that 
I think um, uh, potentially becomes a kind of model for the continent and a positive one. And what do you think's driving that? It certainly is seemingly having very positive impacts in, in South Africa as well as a number of other African countries. Yeah, I think part of it is a recognition um, that both in the coverage from the outside and the coverage from inside the continent, there have been two main narratives, um, uh, which is where we started the conversation. You know, uh, the miracle narrative, some exceptional person like uh, Nelson Mandela who accomplishes some magic. You know, if you Google uh, Mandela, magic, I think you, it comes up with something like five million hits. Mm. That's, the, that's the trope, you know, as if he appeared out of nowhere, didn't come out of a movement, uh, didn't, wasn't part of a collective leadership team. We know that narrative, um, and, 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 and that's, that story is told uh, all over the world and including in Africa because it's considered very rare. And then we know the cataclysm story. And I think part of what this kind of Africanized, globalized spirit you bumped into among young people across class lines in a place like Johannesburg is a recognition and a reclaiming of um, African heritage, even even when people are very, very connected to um, to the world. I was in a small uh, village um, uh, several times because one of the six individuals profiled in the book comes from uh, Limpopo province, one of the poorest provinces in the country, and no electricity in this village, um, very little sense of a connection to the outside. Uh, when I walked across the um, soccer field at a rally, uh, the cry that followed me across the the, um, the field was Mulungu. You know, I could hear people saying behind me, a white person. It was really uh, rare um, to see a white person so disconnected, and yet this group of kids who came up to me, um, who were astonished that an American was there, the first thing the kid asked me when I said I was from from America, he said, do you know Eminem? <laughs> and I, I, I was, you know, took a half step back and then recovered myself and <laughs> said, yes, of, of course I do. He's my neighbor. He lives on one side of me. And on this other side, uh, the neighbor on the other side is City Cent. And immediately there was this connection. He realized that he had mentioned a white rapper, figuring I would be more comfortable with that. I had mentioned the black rapper. And there was this kind of, as you say, globalized um, culture that provided the beginning of a conversation. But then, of course, the more extended conversation was about um, uh, the, the South African and, and Pan-African um, singers, music, ideas, uh, and thinking um, that, uh, that that circle of, of kids, very poor kids and very smart kids, um, are tapped into. To what extent has the leadership of South Africa, post-Mandela, Mbeki, and now Jacob Zuma, to what extent have they understood the forces that we've been talking about that are taking place in their country? I think they're, uh, you know, I, I, I spent a couple of years uh, shadowing President Mbeki. I got to know um, the current president, President Zuma, uh, very, very well. Uh, I think they're essentially cut off from understanding um, uh, young people. Uh, they, you know, Mbeki lived 30 years outside of the country, um, and he, uh, an economist by training, 
uh, and then uh, returned in 1990 uh, to very quickly be in a position as as very powerful deputy president under Mandela, and then president of the country for um, more than eight years. Uh, suddenly, run a place that you don't really know, um, and I think that was uh, definitely a complication uh, in the 94 to 2004 period. Uh, you've had people in the in the top leadership. Um, who were in exile, uh, in prison, uh, or in the guerrilla underground. Uh, and for understandable reasons, they are the people who were looked to for top leadership in the movement. But I think the moment that, um, that lots of people inside the country are looking for, and that I certainly am, is for that moment where the next generation of very competent um, and uh, visionary leaders among that next generation of people who made sacrifices, maybe went to jail for a period of time, but whose consciousness is shaped by the moment of liberation rather than um, the long, uh, long, very difficult period of struggle. And in many ways, it seems that that younger generation has a deeper connection to Mandela, even though he's a lot older and, and, and seemingly would be more disconnected. There seems to be more of a connection there. Well, I think in, in definitely in terms of the people who stayed and were active in the mass democratic movements inside the country uh, and kept going to um, maybe their home villages, but coming back to work uh, during the late, late stages of apartheid and were involved in the mass organizing, had a kind of feel for um, what was happening and what was changing in South African uh, culture uh, during that period. I think the people who were in prison and were um, and were outside of the country felt that they were getting adequate briefings um, by people who were smuggled in or people who were going back and forth um, and and eluding the um, the agents of the apartheid regime. But it's very hard to have the feel for what's happening um, if you are away and separated from your people for so long. I mean, if you think about the idea of contingency in history, that's one of the great tragedies. We don't know uh, what would have happened in the South African context if Mandela um, hadn't spent 27 years in prison, if he had come out and been able to be president for two terms and had been able to take on that challenge as a younger man. He came out as, a, as, um, as, as an older man. Um, who have been in, in prison for 27 years, uh, how, the, how the country might have developed instead. I do think there's uh, something to what you said about uh, a connection to the Mandela idea, uh, particularly because he spans um, so much of the experience, not only of the liberation movement, but of a large percentage of the population, in that he came from a very rural area. He understands um, uh, traditional... Uh, values, village values, and uh, traditional beliefs. Uh, he was a self-made person in the sense that he he left that home, went to the city, became a lawyer, uh, and and lived in Soweto. So he he had the experience of being within so many of the key contexts that um, shape South African identity. From a cultural perspective, it's not unlike the analogy of kids having this relationship to their grandparents, even while rebelling against their parents. 
Yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's quite right, and I think some of the affection of, of of younger people who know him as Tata, who know him as Granddad, um, the, the kind of Granddad of the country. Uh, th- th- there's another aspect to that which is uh, important to bring up, uh, since one of the six individuals uh, who stitched the narrative of this uh, book together is one of his grandsons, which is that there has been a kind of narrowing out of the um, uh, middle-aged population uh, because of the vast kill-off uh, from AIDS. And even uh, Mandela's own grandsons, um, three of his own grandsons, lost both uh, parents to AIDS. So that's even what you're mentioning, which uh, I, I know to be true um, with my own son, the kind of attachment and association with the grandparents and the ease of, of communication, is even more critical in the South African context because um, because so many people have died in those Middle Ages. And how much damage was done to the country post-Mandela by the AIDS denialism of Mbeki? It's huge. Um, you know, the, uh, the, the not-so-recent study now that showed that uh, 300,000 people died needlessly when you when you think about you really wrap your mind around the cultural political um, consequence of apartheid, and then you realize that HIV arrived on the same day that apartheid ended, more or less. You have these these kinds of layers of trauma um, um, rolled over one another, and certainly deepened and exacerbated by the fact that the new people's government uh, did so little. Uh, for so long. I, uh, Mandela has said several times himself that he doesn't know when he dies whether he's going to heaven or hell, but if he ends up in hell, it will be because of his inaction on AIDS. Um, then that was uh, exacerbated um, in, intensely during the Mbeki years because the president uh, was not sure or did not believe, depending on which account you read, uh, that HIV led to AIDS. He, he believed that um, uh, the the real problems were 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 poverty and other illnesses, and that if he uh, did a intense um, treatment program with antiretrovirals, the entire country's budget would be turned over to international pharmaceutical companies. And in a kind of reverse engineered argument, he thought that was the point that the country that he was there was an attempt to manipulate him into uh, derailing the revolution in order to treat people. And um, the tragedy of that is that a very smart man led the country in the in exactly the wrong direction. And as a result, there was this huge delay in, in grappling adequately with the problem. I think the good news is that there was a huge uh, upsurge of organizing, including um, by the Treatment Action Campaign, one of the most successful civil organizations in world history that put the government's feet to the fire, um, uh, kept the pressure up, and tens of thousands of heroic doctors, nurses, community health workers who, even under the obstructionism of uh, when Mbeki was president, did um, enormous service. And since Mbeki left office, a visionary uh, health minister um, has launched the kind of program that should have been in place eight years earlier. But nonetheless, we begin to see the, the consequences in leveling off of the rate of new infections. And, you know, some, a few hopeful signs, I don't want to overstate it because it's still a, 
a, a massively um, complicated problem, but beginning to turn the corner on the um, on the uh, epidemic in, in South Africa. Talking about the younger generation, how are they doing economically at this point, and how long are they willing to wait before they demand some more level of power? Yeah, I think the demands are coming pretty um, pretty heavily right now. Um, you know, rates of um, rates of unemployment, uh, especially among young black men, are sky high, far higher um, than in the Arab world, uh, where uh, often the analysis is mm-hmm. that, uh, of course, there was an explosion um, uh, because uh, of the high unemployment rates. Um, those rates are dwarfed by the reality these days for young South Africans. Um, I think that, that that frustration, anger, and um, and bitterness that comes from a lack of economic development is um, militated slightly, uh, or maybe even more than slightly, by the fact that people have seen dramatic change um, in the last 18 years. Two million people pulled out of poverty um, and entering uh, middle-income ranks um, and the enormous effort to make sure that even if there aren't adequate jobs, that people have adequate shelter, water, and electricity, those kind of advances have have made them see that change is possible. But at what point um, uh, the possibility of change and not enough change uh, in the very basic issue of being able to provide for yourself that's always a really hard calculation to, to figure on. But I see, I think we see all over the country um, in the last six months uh, more and more organizing, everything from wildcat strikes for people who do have jobs, like the miners at Miracana Mine, um, where there was uh, that massacre by police, to um, the so-called service delivery riots around the country where people march on their ANC uh, counselors' homes and say, wait a minute, three national elections uh, uh, already in which uh, we continue to uh, return the ANC to power, and where are the things you've been promising now for 18 years? Is Jacob Zuma up to the challenge? I think he, um, you know, I mentioned the turnaround on HIV, so you have to give him big credit on on. Um, that side of the ledger, at least in terms of appointing a, a very good health minister who's who's been um, quite impressive. Uh, I think in the um, early years after he was elected president of, of the ANC, there were some signs that he was going to do what uh, others in the leadership uh, supported him to do, which was to stitch the party back together. On that ground, though, in the last couple of years, you'd have to say um, very mixed record. The party is, if anything, more divided than ever. Um, I think he's punched above his weight and surprised people in terms of his uh, behavior in the international um, field. He was the only uh, leader of a developing country in Copenhagen in the room when the climate control um, agreement was reached. Uh, on the places where I think he really falls down and where um, young people are increasingly restive and, uh, and uninterested in him as a leader would be on gender equity. He's uh, a 
You know, he comes from a small village. He has very patriarchal values. Uh, he's a polygamist. He's uh, married to several women and and uh, and uh, has many girlfriends. Uh, so on the issue of gender equity, even though uh, there are strong women in his cabinet um, on that score, I think uh, uh, young people rightly find him wanting. On the question of media freedoms and in the understanding of uh, the importance of judicial independence, I think he also gets pretty low marks. Do we see a new younger generation of leaders emerging? Yeah, I think the party is full of um, uh, women and men in their 40s and 50s who had the experience of, uh, of the kind of organizing that happened in the country uh, in the labor unions uh, and in civic organizations in the 80s. Uh, so we're involved in the, in the struggle that made the country ungovernable, that brought the white regime to the negotiating table, but maybe um, aren't scarred quite so much uh, by either the long years of absence from the country or um, the kind of experience of 23 years of being in the bush, being under the bombs of um, the apartheid regime when people were in a neighboring, neighboring countries, didn't experience directly a friend receiving a mail bomb uh, in the mail and being blown up or severely injured, didn't have to um, live with the fear that um, they would wake up in the middle of the night and be bombed or assassinated. There is that generation of leadership who were kind of tempered in struggle, know how hard it was to achieve what was achieved in 1994, but maybe uh, aren't as likely to be swamped by that history or overwhelmed by that history, and as a result, uh, to be unable to see where the country is right now and where it needs to move. So I think there are there are impressive people uh, inside the party. I think there are also quite impressive people in the other parties that don't get much of our attention because the ANC is still winning um, 64% of the popular vote in, in the last national election. But I think there are, there are impressive um, leaders, also, you know, both women and men. I should say just on the question of gender that um, the representation of women at the very top levels of government in parliament and at top levels of corporations in South Africa uh, would make us ashamed. Um, we are nowhere near uh, parity of the kind that exists in the National Assembly um, and, and in government. But, but, but yeah, I see in, in, uh, in, in the other parties, in, uh, in the Democratic Alliance, in COPE, some signs of emerging leadership in that next generation of people in their 40s and 50s and also in the ANC that I think gives gives one cautious hope that when uh, the this older generation can be um, dislodged uh, and uh, convinced to do other things or to retire, um, that things are not going to fall apart. Maybe, as you suggest, that this next generation will be a bit more like um, Mandela's generation. Douglas Foster, the book is After Mandela, The Struggle for Freedom in Post-Apartheid South Africa. Doug, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. It's great to talk to you, Jeff. Thanks a lot. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 